Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the Donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. For now, I'm just going to go ahead and get into the topic, which is the, the five spiritual faculties. And these five spiritual faculties are faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And we get kind of a bad reputation in Buddhism, right? That so much of what we speak to here is all about suffering. And so, like, even the Buddha himself said that he only teaches suffering and the end of suffering. And so, really, at the start of our practice, a lot of it is talking about our suffering, honoring our suffering, embracing dukkha. And that, I, that's been great for me, especially at the beginning, and this talk is the second half of that statement, the end of suffering. And so we got kind of a more positive uh, discussion tonight. So these qualities, these spiritual faculties. Sometimes these spiritual faculties are called um, virtues. And that kind of brings a bad taste in my mouth, right? Because I think of sometimes of the virtuous, so-called virtuous people, this like purity culture of perfectionism I kind of grew up around, and how much social influence and pressure there was by so-called virtuous people to act a certain way, look a certain way, talk a certain way, behave a certain way. And uh, that's why I appreciate that especially in the Buddhist path, our virtues are internally. That we cultivate certain qualities within us that lead us in our own virtues. And the literal translation of these spiritual faculties are called indriyas, indriyas. And I say this because the Buddha landed on this term indriyas as a reference to the Vedic god Indra. So the Vedic god Indra is um, a powerful god. And not that the Buddha worshipped this god or even believed in this god, but it was just kind of around <laughs> this discussion about gods was around in the Buddha's time even today. And so the Buddha, rather than saying worship this external being, he was saying take these qualities of Indra, these powerful qualities of Indra, and cultivate them inside of yourself. And so that's why we have these indriyas. And so that we talk about the power, that Indra was uh, this powerful god, that's why sometimes we call these the five spiritual powers. I didn't put that on the flyer because y'all would come in thinking, oh, I'm going to learn how to levitate and walk through walls and all of that. And that stuff's cool and that's a discussion for another time, but I would rather be able to develop some of these internal processes that lead us away from suffering. Flying's cool, but if you're not finding any suffering, you're just like flying and suffering, right? So, uh, so let's step into this. These five faculties, uh, powers, indriyas, are written in a certain way. So we, we categorize these in a balance act. That the first one of faith, 
balances with the fifth one <coughs> of wisdom. And they balance each other out here. So you may be a person of devotion, of faith, of strong uh, devotion. You need to have that balance of wisdom and even a little bit of intellect. Because if you fall into too much faith, you end up being overly superstitious. Um, you may be um, doing things like praying to a god to do your practice for you. Sure, we can have concepts of gods and God and all that, but hopefully just to motivate us to do the work. So we may fall into things that like are dogmatic or ritualistic if we have too much faith. So we need to have this other end of wisdom to balance it out. But if you have just too much wisdom, you may think you can think your way out of suffering or study your way out of suffering. Um, you may over uh, intellectualize and philosophize about things. And that's not going to get you anywhere. You can't use a scholarly method to end your suffering. You actually need to have some, some faith involved in this practice as well. So these two faculties balance each other out with, with faith and wisdom. Faith and wisdom. We need to have both of these. And then the second and the fourth works, works together as well. That we have this balance of energy and tranquility, of concentration, we call it. That too much energy, you end up restless, stressed, worried, uh, without any calm. Just too much energy. But having the balance of concentration, what leads to tranquility, you may have too much shutting down, too much calm. You may be falling asleep or disengaged. So we want to have both of these things, energy and tranquility. And then the third one of these five spiritual faculties is mindfulness. And so mindfulness gives us the, the balance to look at all of these qualities. That mindfulness is a way that we take an observational approach to our internal experience. And so when we look at our internal experience, we see all of these different qualities. And when we start seeing all these different qualities within us, we can start discerning and responding. And so when we notice, okay, maybe there's too much intellect. Maybe I'm just in my head a little bit. Okay, now I can observe that and maybe respond. Maybe I need a little bit more faith. Maybe I need to just say the refuges in my mind right now to balance that out. Or go into my heart a little bit and maybe do some loving kindness a little bit. And mindfulness gives us that choice to observe and balance it out. So I want to go through piece by piece each of these spiritual faculties, tease them out, and use this mindfulness to see what feels appropriate in your life, what you uh, may be calling to be cultivating when it comes to any of these um, balancing acts of spiritual faculties. So the first one, faith, sada. There's a wide range, what I've noticed, a wide range of feelings around this word faith. Right? Some of us may have been longing for faith. Great, now the teacher is going to tell me what to believe, and I don't got to worry about that. I'll just put faith in whatever he says, and I'll believe it, and I don't have to worry. While on the other end, some of us have some woundedness around being told what to believe. With blind faith, we've been manipulated, uh, we've been lied to. Right? And so, luckily for us, Buddhism doesn't want any of those. 
doesn't want blind faith. It doesn't really even want belief. We want direct experience. And so this faith sometimes is translated as confidence, and that's kind of a popular term for us to use for this word sada. But there was a conversation I was having with my, my, one of my teachers, and I vividly remember it. He was visiting, um, and we were just like hanging out in the kitchen, you know, kitchen hangs where you're just discussing things. And this word sada came up, and I, I said, yeah, you know, I kind of like talking about it as confidence. And he's like, I don't. I like faith because I know there's sometimes I just don't feel confident in my practice, and I still do it anyway. <laughs> and so... Yeah, see for yourself whatever this word sada means for you. I will use the word faith, um, even if there may be some strange conditioning around that word. So this practice, rather than blindly believing whatever the teacher says or whatever the books say, we are asked to see for ourselves. And this is the word ehipasiko. You may hear this word quite often here because I think we really like it here that the Buddha didn't say believe it because it's in a book or believe it because a great teacher said it. Go see for yourself. Ehipasika is the term. And traditionally this comes from an old school story when the Buddha was out preaching his dharma to a group of people called the Kalamas. And the thing about the Kalamas was it seems like every week a different spiritual teacher was coming to visit the Kalamas and preaching their dharma, their, you know, salvation and liberation. And so one teacher would be teaching about, you know, fire worship, or the other teacher would be uh, teaching on extreme asceticism. And then the Buddha's coming in, and he's talking to these people about his dharma. And one person in the audience very uh, courageously asks the Buddha, he's like, why should I believe you? Like, every week a different spiritual teacher says they got the answers, and one's saying this thing, one's saying that thing. I don't even know what to believe anymore. Why should I believe you? And the Buddha asked this person, said, said have you noticed when greed arises in your mind, and when it arises in your mind, ask yourself, does that lead to my own affliction? Does that lead to others' affliction? Does that lead to both? And when hate, do you notice when hate arises in your mind? Does that lead to your own affliction, others' affliction, or both? And when ignorance, delusion arises in your mind, does that lead to your affliction, others' afflictions, or both? And he was like, yeah, totally. Like, those things totally arise in my mind and make a big mess out of my life. And so, yes, see this dharma for yourself. See how this practice leads you away from those causes of suffering. Take on this practice and try it out. Go see Ahipasako. And I, I really like that because this isn't a belief system. It's something you do, not something you think or believe. It's something you do. And so go see for yourself. And so most of us, we got a lot of people that are returning practitioners here. Something probably got you on the path. Something probably got you to continue the path. And I remember at the beginning, what really got me into this practice, got me to build faith, was the truth of dukkha, was that truth of suffering. You know, I come from 80s middle class America where, you know, the D.A.R.E. program and the 
don't say or just say no to drugs campaign we're like stigmatizing mental illness and addiction and I, I was like really around that suburban culture where you just don't talk about it keep appearances about it don't talk about it and then I crack open a Buddhist book and it's like let's be honest we're all suffering here aren't we like aging sickness death sorrow grief despair we're all going through it let's be honest about that and especially at a time where it was like I was beating myself up because I thought life isn't supposed to be this painful. I must be doing life wrong. And I see the Buddhist path and it goes, no, we're all going through this. It doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. And it's like, I have faith in that. So I feel like somebody's telling me the truth. <laughs> and then the other aspect of like, some of us may have faith when it comes to the teachings of impermanence, the teaching of change that everything changes and nothing lasts, right? That if you find yourself bugging out, your mind's flipping out, your body's in pain, it may just have a little bit of refuge when you just notice this won't last forever. And just watching all these things change. If the experience in your end right now is hell, just wait, it'll change. And it's like, oh, I have faith in that. It did change. That's wonderful. It may come back, <laughs> but that's the thing about impermanence. It'll come and go. And uh, other things like meditation, like when you have that insight that you don't have to believe every thought you think to be a commandment. <laughs> what a relief that that thought is just a thought. It's not what defines me. I don't have to follow it. I don't have to believe it. I don't have to hate it. It's just a thought. Like, when you have that light bulb moment, oh yeah, there's a little bit of faith that comes with that. Let's see what happens when I keep going. Right? And so whatever it is that gave you a little bit of faith to get your ass on the cushion, whatever that is, notice that and maybe follow that and see where it takes you. And where it takes you on this list is to energy. Through verified faith, we get motivated into what we call virya energy. And for me, like I, I remember, I, I have a lot of I remembers in this talk today, I think. So I remember when I first started meditating, I my wife was like, you like get up and do this, don't you? My first practice, we would uh, meditate at 7.45 a.m. And this was at a time in my life where I was typically out all night until the a.m.s, right? And now I'm waking up at the very early a.m.s to be with my ass on the cushion at 7.45 a.m. So there must, must have been something that had a verified faith in me to get up in the morning, to be motivated, to have that energy, to wake up at a time that I've never woken up at in my adult life at that point, and got me going as much as possible. Even my teachers, they, they said, you were like always here. Like anytime there was a sit, you're always here. And I gotta give props, because some of you are those people. I look up and I see the same people here, and it's like, oh, there must be that verified faith that brings that energy of perseverance. Something in this practice gets you here. God, some of you, it seems like four times a week, right? So props all day for that energy. 
at Viria. And so this term, Viria, is rooted, I'm, I'm doing a lot of wordy stuff too today, <laughs> in uh, the term Vira, V-I-R-A. Any of y'all know what Vira is? Any yoga people? Uh, warrior, it's like the warrior pose. I know nothing about yoga, but I, I've heard that, so forgive me if I'm incorrect. And so this Virya has like a warrior aspect to it, where you'll do what needs to be done. That you'll sit with the pain if, this, if I need to sit with the pain. I'll, I'll exert myself in a way that maybe I need to exert myself in a little bit more of a fashion. If I need to push myself, I can push myself. If I need to love myself, I can love myself with that courageous attitude. And at the same time, you know, we, we live in like hustle culture these days. There's never enough. Like, there's, we'll talk about stigmas around addiction. Some reason there's no stigma around addiction to work. <laughs> and I want to talk to that a little bit because a classic story that speaks to that in the Buddhist teachings is the story of Ananda. Ananda was the Buddha's assistant and younger cousin. And Ananda was very bright. Ananda had this like memory that he could memorize everything the Buddha said because he was at every single one of the Buddha's talks because he was his assistant and he just remembered all of them. And I literally believe this, that memory was a whole different thing back in the day. People had to memorize a lot of things. So Ananda had a really good memory and he memorized everything the Buddha said. But as impermanence happens, the Buddha died. And the first council met to try to come up with, okay, what's this practice of Buddhism that we're coming up with here? Like, the Buddha's gone. We need to come up with what he actually taught in this council so we could teach it to everybody. And so they wanted to in invite Ananda to their meeting, but the thing was, Ananda wasn't enlightened. An Ananda wasn't an arhat. And so they're like, well, you can't really be a part of this council until you reach full awakening, because we want to make sure you really understand this stuff. So Ananda went home, and he was like, that's it. Do or die. I'm waking up tonight. And so he sat in meditation, and he didn't budge. And then he got up for walking meditation. Then he walked in meditation until it was time to sit in meditation. And he sat in meditation and exert himself, exert himself, because it was really important he wake up that night. Until he was like, oh, I know what the Buddha would say about this. And he reflected on a teaching that the Buddha gave a musician, that it was like a, a lute, like a stringed instrument he was talking about. And he was talking about proper effort. And if you tune a stringed instrument too tight, it'll be a little bit too sharp. If you tune it too loose, it'll be a little bit too flat, right? And so we need to get that effort in tune. And Ananda was like, yeah, my effort is way too sharp right now. I need to get myself in tune. I think I'm going to lay down to go to sleep. And as Ananda went to fall asleep, he put his head down. And as his head hit the, the pillow, he reached full awakening. And not only did he reach full awakening, he, did, he actually developed spiritual powers, so they say. And the next day, they were having their little council. And so that since there was no argument about it, Ananda flew into the council and sat in front of them and said, I'm awakened. And 
that awakening came from that proper effort. And, you know, societally, I think we are a little bit too high strung a little bit and know when it's time to chill out, put your head on that pillow because you may wake up. Um, and so, as we enter into this like third balancing act, using mindfulness as a way to balance these spiritual powers, these spiritual faculties, I don't know how much I really want to say about mindfulness that besides it helps us give that sense of discernment, that it helps us bring the awareness inward, that so much of our reality is just projected outward. And we're just living out here so much that mindfulness is an invitation to come inward. And when we come inward, we start seeing things, right? We're noticing this breathing body. We notice the sensations and feelings in this body. We notice the thoughts in this body. And like I said, that non-judgmental awareness. And when we maintain that non-judgmental awareness, we gain wisdom. We can see and discern. What's helpful? What's not helpful? What path should I follow? Which path should I move away from? And then stepping into this next spiritual faculty, when we develop that mindfulness to continue bring the awareness inward, we, we drop into what we call concentration, what the real word for this is samadhi, samadhi. And over time, we develop that skill to develop unification of the mind and the body. And we find that single-pointed awareness that helps us stay inward. That the Buddha said, seek no external refuge. And our minds continually want to go outward. Through concentration, we find that internal refuge, that awakening within. And we can continually stay with it. We can train it in formal meditation. And then when we train our awareness to stay inward, we go out into the world and we try to maintain a good amount of concentration, a good amount of samadhi, a good amount of awareness inward in our day-to-day -day life. Uh, that one of my teachers says, meditation and daily life are not separate. We hear the bell ring, we're like, sweet, I can let my mind roll and I can worry about work and I can get so obsessed with the outside world. Don't do that. You, you hear the bell, and the next thing you're doing is your meditation. When you're sharing with somebody, when you're talking with one another, I like playing the game of percentages. How, how, how much are we out here? Am I 100% out here and zero in here? That may lead to a lot of troubles. But if I'm 100% in here and not engaged in the, with the world, that may lead to some trouble. So maybe I, right now it's like 70% inward, 30 outward, or 50-50. And just using that mindfulness exercise to maintain a certain amount of awareness. One of my really good friends, she's a Buddhist nun, and I know a few of you uh, have heard this story, but we were hanging out somewhat recently, and she says, at least 25% of my awareness is on my breath at all times. And she's a Buddhist nun, but still like, quite inspirational that any time this breath is available, any time to remind us of this internal refuge that we take in Buddhism. There it is, huh? I was talking with a friend. I'm recording this talk. Hopefully he hears it. Because uh, he, he loves it when I reference him in the talks. I don't give his name, but he's like, oh, I know you're talking about me in that talk. 
So now I'm going to talk about him in this talk. We were, we were talking on the phone. Uh, he doesn't live in town, but we were talking on the phone. And he's just stressed from work, <laughs> having a really hard time with his work, just doing too much. And he said, oh, you know, I put on good old Ajahn Brahm. Now, I don't know if y'all have ever heard Ajahn Brahm. He's a teacher in our lineage, a student of Ajahn Chah, uh, lives in Australia. Great teacher, very fun-loving teacher. And he was like, I was just in my head so much. I listened to Ajahn Brahm. And uh, he ends the talk with just this simple statement. Don't think so much. That's his solution. Don't think so much. That's the thing about some of these monks. They'll just say it directly. And you're like, but no, I have to think. I can't stop my thinking. I'm blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, no, no bullshit. Just don't. Don't think. Or just don't think so much. And that's hard. And luckily, my friend I'm speaking to, he has a very dedicated practice, and he had that ability to go, oh, yeah, back to the breath. Because there, there's a saying we say here, those who show up for the Dharma, the Dharma shows up for them. So anytime you come back to your breath in meditation or your day-to-day -day life, that is a skill you are developing. Whatever you do, you get better at. So in any moment, you're like, oh yeah, that breath is here. Because you may need that breath later when you are stressed out or you get some terrible news or you're just thought after thought after thought of thought with restlessness. You may go, oh yeah, I have that breath right here. So your breath right now, each time you're bringing your breath to your awareness right now is a gift to yourself in the future when you may need it. So continually training yourself anytime, because it will show up for you. And then when Ajahn Brahm says something so offensive, direct, and yet correct, stop thinking. You go, okay, I know how to do that, all right? Which brings us to what we discover when we live this internal life, which is the last one, wisdom, panya. And earlier, I, I gave this like analogy that wisdom is intellect, uh, not really. Wisdom is something far different than intellect. When we take our intellect and apply it to direct experience, it becomes wisdom. And so wisdom comes from, like I said, this direct experience. And sometimes we think, well, if I need to have wisdom and understand the whole laws of the whole universe, then I need to go explore the whole universe. And that's not true. Because the laws of the whole universe exist inside of you. The same way everything works out there is the same way everything works in here. So the more you are in here exploring the laws of this internal universe, you will have wisdom for the outside universe as well. So just like everything changes in here, that you can watch the, the breath move, change, that everything has birth, aging, and death. You breathe in, that's birth. You breathe out, that's death. Quite the same nature out there. That there is birth, there is death out there. And so when we come to terms with these internal truths and laws, it's a wisdom, it's a deep understanding. And there's this quote, William Blake writes, to see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Everything becomes our practice. Everything. 